ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. If you think about the ocean and the creatures living in it, the mental picture you might get is of an undersea zoo with fish and crustaceans and squid and whales and tiny little wriggling shrimp. They're the creatures who come up close to the water's surface where sunlight can get in. But how about the animals living in the lower depths, down in the darkness? Those regions make up the vast bulk of the ocean. And because it's so dark and hard to get to, we know so very little about what's going on down there. Dr Edith Witter says that the open ocean is a fantastically strange and wonderful place. Edith is a marine biologist. As a young woman, she experienced a spell of temporary blindness. And after she regained her sight, she was driven towards the light, to the science of bioluminescence, the spectacular light displays made by creatures in the dark regions of the oceans. Edith has visited these places in pressurised underwater suits and in submersibles, and she's seen amazing things. A jellyfish that generates spinning pinwheels of light. A fish with headlights like a car. And others that are lit up like Christmas trees. And as a scientist, she had to know, why? Why is there so much light down there in the dark? Edith's wonderful memoir is called Below the Edge of Darkness. And I'm speaking to her while she's in her home in Florida in the United States. Hi, Edith. Hi. Your first experience in seeing this wonderful underwater world was when you were lowered down into the lower depths in a submersible suit called a wasp suit. Edith, what do you see when you're being lowered down into those dark waters? Well, out in the open ocean environment, away from the bottom and shore... It's a very strange world. You know, the first thing you notice when you go through the interface between air and water is an abrupt change of color. Suddenly all the oranges and the reds and the yellows fade away and pretty quickly all you're seeing is blue-green and then just blue light. And then as you continue on down, it starts becoming too dim to even see the color anymore. It becomes kind of charcoal gray. And eventually the light from sunlight disappears, but you start seeing flashes of living light from bioluminescence. And that was just the most spectacular light show I had ever seen. It was like Van Gogh's starry night, except, you know, all of these stars were swirling around me. I've had a lot of people describe the experience as being like the 4th of July. You see fireworks all around you but it's 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 not the same because with a fireworks display you're observing it from a distance but in this case you're part of the display you're right in the center of it and every movement is causing all of these flashes and glows and sparkly uh, eruptions that are all around you the creatures that are giving off light down there, is that just some of them, a few of the creatures, or many of them, or most of them? Well, actually, it turns out it's most of them. Most of the shrimp, the fish, the squid. It's the rule rather than the exception. On average, about 75%, there, but there are places where it's as much as 90% of the animals make light. When you turn on the lights in the wasp or a submersible, when you're seeing that 
sparkly display all around you, most of the time you don't see what's making the light because it's either, they're either too transparent or too small to be detected by eye. So there's all this other much smaller stuff that's making light as well. How strange does that feel? Like you, you're describing it as being like fireworks, but, but also it's like fireworks in space that are happening all around you. Does it feel like otherworldly? It's very otherworldly. In fact, James Cameron is drawing on that for a lot of Avatar. It's that otherworld experience that we can best relate to because it's, it is our planet, but it's one that very few people have had the opportunity to explore. And the thing that's really stunning about it is if you understand that what you're seeing is life and it takes a lot of energy for that life to produce light. And so that was what I was struck by on that first dive. This much energy had to be really, really important. And I just wanted to understand more about why it was so important that so many animals in the ocean make light. I suppose that's a question of perspective, isn't it? Because it's very human to imagine that this is all for your benefit, isn't it? When you're down there and seeing all this life being given off. But of course, it's not all about you and what you want to see. There must be a real need for this because does it cost them energy-wise to give off this light? It costs them a lot, yeah. We're looking at billions of photons per second being emitted by these creatures it's astonishing amount of energy and clearly has to be playing a critical role in their survival or they wouldn't be doing it. The light that they give off, it's blue. Is it a warm light or a cool light? Oh, it's definitely cold light. If you've ever, ever held a firefly, that's kind of, it's magic. You can hold the firefly in your hand and realize that there's no heat associated with that light. Most of it in the open ocean environment is blue, but not universally. It actually comes in all colors, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and violet. Most of it is blue because that's the color that travels furthest through water. And so animals have evolved the wavelength or the color that is the best means of communication. So most animals produce blue light and most animals only see blue light. But there are very interesting exceptions. There's a deep sea fish called the stoplight fish that not only has blue light organs that it can use as headlights but it's got red ones too and it can see its own red light because it can see both blue light and red light which is very unusual but that means that it can use its red light like a sniper scope to be able to sneak up on other animals that are blind to that red light and it can see them but they can't see it. How do they make the light? What do we know about the chemistry of that and how it works within their bodies, Edith? Well, that's one of the fascinating things about bioluminescence. The enzyme is called luciferase and the substrate luciferin. Those are just generic terms for any enzyme or any substrate that produces living light. And they are very different in different animals. So we've harvested these different types of chemistries and harnessed them for our own use. The most famous of all of these is from a jellyfish, and it's a a molecule called green fluorescent protein. And its discovery and application has been equated to the invention of the microscope in terms of the impact it's had on advancing understanding of cell biology because it turned on a light inside cells and let us know whenever DNA was being activated in a particular cell. Edith, given that it costs these creatures so much to produce this light, that seems to sit against 
their need to hide in the dark. I mean, they're living down there because they want to hide in the dark. So if they're hiding in the dark, why are they putting on these lights? What are the, the main reasons why these creatures of the dark are making their own lights? So that was obviously my question when I was seeing all that light being made. But part of that confusion came from the fact that I didn't realize how much of that light I was stimulating by being there. So with WASP, the suit is on an umbilical cord. So I was sort of like a tea bag on a string bouncing up and down in <laughs> the ocean, you know, attached to the ship at the surface that was bouncing up and down on the waves. And the first time I dove a, the single-person submersible deep rover, which is untethered, I went down into the deep waters and leveled out the sub and just went dead in the water completely neutral buoyancy and I was intending to sit there and count the number of spontaneous flashes per second or per minute and I sat and I waited and I waited and I waited and there was nothing but if I bumped the thrusters or moved in the slightest bit there was explosions of light all around me and I suddenly realized that this is a minefield that these animals have to negotiate all the time. There's all of this light poised to go off if you bump into it, but it doesn't get used except very conservatively, which made more sense from the energetic standpoint. So the analogy I give in the book is imagine you're in a big football stadium enclosed and it's pitch black and there's nice juicy apples hanging from strings that can help you survive if you can just find them. The trouble is when you start moving around, you realize also dangling from strings everywhere are these little LED lights that light up on contact. The other problem is in that same football stadium is a panther <laughs> as hungry as you are. And the first time you move and trigger one of those lights, its head is gonna snap around and lock onto you and you're dead. And so these animals have to figure out how to survive under those conditions. So basically what most of them are using their light for is either to find food, to attract mates, or to ward off predators in some ways. So tell me how some of the shrimp down there use bioluminescence for defense. There's shrimp that do it. There's squid that do it. There's even a few fish that can do it. And there's jellyfish that can squirt out their luminescence into the water, into the face of an attacking predator, temporarily blinding it while they make an escape into the darkness. It's like ink or something, is it? But it's, liquid, it's, it's liquid light. It's brilliant. Edith, I think one of the weirdest creatures you mentioned in your book is the cockeyed squid. <laughs> Tell me what that is and how it looks at the world and how it uses its own lighting system. So it's called the cockeyed squid because its eyes are different sizes. It has one large eye that looks up and one very small eye that looks down, which seems to make no, no sense because you need a large eye to collect more light and there's, you'd think it would be the other way around. But the large eye is looking up against a charcoal gray background, trying to pick out a very small silhouette against that background that tells it that there's food up there. And the small eye is looking down into the blackness, but surrounding that small eye are light organs called photophores that are like headlights that allow it to see things like prey items that come close to it. So you have to understand the 
visual environment that these animals are occupying to have a better understanding of how their their eyes and their light producing capabilities work to their benefit. Edith, you say that every night in the ocean, the world's biggest migration takes place. What is that migration? Well, as evolution developed more and more predators that could swim fast and see at a distance, prey either had to be able to outswim the predators or find some place to hide. But there's no trees or bushes to hide behind in the open ocean. So they were forced into the dark depths, but there's no food down there. So they have to come up into the food-rich surface waters where photosynthesis occurs, but they do it under cover of darkness. So every day, the most massive animal migration pattern on the planet occurs in the ocean as animals dive into the depths of the ocean at sunrise to avoid being visible in the light, and then at night, they come up to the surface in order to feed. They live most of their lives below the edge of darkness, and they've evolved all of this light-producing capability to allow them to survive in darkness. I think the lower-depth fish that most of us are familiar with is the anglerfish, which is a particularly fabulously monstrous-looking fish with that giant overhanging light bulb. Now, is it just for finding food, that light bulb that hangs over the front of the anglerfish? Yeah, it's, it's, it's meant to attract food, but it can also be used to attract a mate. So those scary-looking anglerfish that you're most familiar with are females. And the males in the anglerfish world are what are known as dwarf males. And they have no actual visible means of self-support. They have no lure for attracting food, no teeth for clamping onto anything that came near them. Their only hope for existence on the planet is as a gigolo. <laughs> they've, they've got to find themselves a babe, and they've got to latch on for life. <laughs> so what do they do? They go around looking for one of these big, scary female anglerfish with the light bulbs, these little dwarf males. What do they do when they find one? Well, they're very cautious about the way they approach her. <laughs> <laughs> And if they make a mistake, it could end badly, but uh, they usually attach themselves to her flank, and his flesh fuses with her flesh, her bloodstream goes into his body, and he becomes nothing more than a little sperm sack. Wow. Idea. That's that's a very very strange example of gender relations. I think I'm, I'm not sure how much we want to learn from that as an example, Edith. So all that's all he brings to the party here is is his little tiny deposit of sperm as he latches onto the the female in this case. It's sperm on demand. That's it. <laughs> you said that it's not just a way of looking for food, though. That lamplight. It's also a lure. How does that work? Well, that particular lure is uh, unusual in that the fish doesn't produce its own luminescence. It uses bioluminescent bacteria. And so the end of the lure has a specially designed or evolved compartment that the bacteria grow in. So it's a symbiotic relationship. And the interesting thing about bacteria is they glow instead of flash. And glowing things tend to be attractive in the ocean. Most of the food that makes its way into the deep sea is stuff that falls down from above, and an awful lot of that stuff is fecal pellets, fish poop. That's a major, major form of sustenance for many animals in the deep sea. 
And interestingly, a lot of fecal pellets glow because they have bioluminescent bacteria on them. And that has a selective advantage for the bacteria because if they get pooped out and just fall to the bottom of the ocean, there's not much food down there. But if they glow, then they get consumed by another fish and are reintroduced into the food-rich environment of that fish's gut and then get pooped out and consumed again and again and again, and it keeps the bacteria up in the water column. So the lure of the anglerfish looks like the, a very common source of food in the deep sea, which is glowing fish poop. So the use of light is really complicated then. There's, light is used for all kinds of different things. It's almost like an economy of light that operates down there. Yeah, it's, it's enormously complicated and I don't think we've even begun to tap into the level of complexity that's possible. Tell me about a fish called the viper fish that you've encountered, Edith. I love viper fish. They're just such cool-looking animals, and mm -hmm. they're, I, they're kind of the Christmas tree of fish because they've got light organs all over them. So it's called a viper fish because it's got these super long fangs that if they actually closed inside the mouth of the fish, it would impale its own brain, <laughs> and instead they slide in grooves on the outside of the head, and, and if it closes its mouth, the, the ends of the teeth would actually extend above the eye, and it's got a um, modified fin ray that comes out of its back and arches in front of the toothy jaw. And, and at the end of that is a, a light organ. This one, not with bacteria, it produces its own bioluminescent chemicals. Um, so that's used as a lure. Then it's got these beautiful jewel-like light organs that adorn its belly. And that's actually a pretty common trick amongst fish and squid and shrimp. They produce light from their bellies that exactly matches the color and the intensity of downwelling sunlight in the ocean. And it allows them to just eliminate their shadow, that silhouette that is the most common search image of most predators that are generally swimming around looking up for any kind of shadow that would indicate there's food up there. They just eliminate their shadow completely. Are you saying, Edith, that these fish, these viper fish, are able to generate just the perfect amount of light, very just like a, the tiniest glow if need be, to counteract the effect of their black shadow against a very dark grey background for predators that are looking from the bottom up towards the surface. Is that what you're saying? They're able to calibrate it to that degree? Exactly right. And if a cloud goes over the sun and dims the sun light, then they dim their bioluminescence. It's an amazing trick. Is this why fish are thin rather than fat most of the time? That is exactly right. That shape is not for hydrodynamic reasons. If you want to be fast swimmer, you're big and round like a shark or a tuna. That flat form is meant to make you harder for, to see from below, and the silver sides achieve the same thing. But a lot, a lot of animals take it one step further and produce light from their bellies that is a perfect color match, a perfect intensity match. It's a perfect match for the angular distribution of the light. So a lot of these light organs have lenses over them that make sure that the light splays out in just the right pattern. It's a perfect, perfect match. It's the ultimate cloaking device. Good God, that's the genius of natural selection for you. That's amazing. It is. And the viper fish has even more light organs. It's got a flashlight under each eye. It's got 
a mucus layer that covers the back and the belly and it can flash an outline of its body for reasons unknown. <laughs> it's got light in every single one of its scales that it can flash and it's got light organs even in its mouth and I've seen those flash and they can make the teeth look like they're flashing sometimes. It's, it's just incredible and we, you know, we can guess at some of it but, but most of it we have no clue what it's using all these different light organs for. Huh, it has all these adaptable lights. Correct. Let it live in the dark. It's a fascinating paradox. Mm-hmm. I suppose that's the heart of what you do, Edith, is trying to figure that out. It is, and I love it. It's a fabulous mystery. Jellyfish, you mentioned jellyfish there. Tell me how they use their lights for defence. Well, that's the intriguing thing about jellyfish because they have some very elaborate flash patterns and they, you know, they don't have eyes, so it's clearly directed probably at predators. Jellyfish, even one jellyfish, can have multiple different types of displays depending on the type of stimulus it receives. So one of my favorite jellyfish is the atolla, which looks like a, a bright red flower with tentacles streaming out of it. And if you just touch it gently, it can squirt luminescence off one of the flaps that that are called lappets. If you poke the bell, it'll just give you kind of a localized flash. But if you grab it, like a fish was grabbing it and it was at risk of being consumed, it produces a pinwheel of light that swirls around and around and around and is bright and can be seen from a very long distance off. And that's what's known as a bioluminescent burglar alarm. It's just like on your car with the blinking lights and flashing, I mean, flashing lights and beeping horn are meant to attract attention. So a lot of animals that have bioluminescence will use every light organ they've got to attract attention if they're caught by a predator in the hopes that they'll attract a bigger predator that may attack their attacker and afford them an opportunity for escape. But it has to be at the point where a much larger predator has got it jellyfish in its mouth and at that point this is like a a last ditch defense a last scream if you like of, of terror before it's consumed it is exactly a scream for help yep but with light i wonder if such a thing could ever work for a jellyfish it must work i suppose otherwise there'd be no evolutionary advantage in having it well that was my question was i you know okay that's the idea but how could we ever know for sure and the problem was that anything I could think of doing to be able to observe was going to disturb the animal life down there in such a way that I could never be sure what I was seeing was natural. And I, every time I went down in a submersible, I would imagine, you know, how many animals are there just outside the range of my lights that can see me but I can't see them? How am I ever going to learn about them? And so I wanted to develop a camera system that I could leave on the bottom of the ocean that could see without being seen. It needed to be unobtrusive. We do that all the time on land. If we want to observe nocturnal animals, we use infrared lights and infrared cameras, but you can't do that in the ocean because infrared light is absorbed so thoroughly by water that it's essentially useless. And so I wanted to see if I could figure out a combination using red light in combination with a super intensified camera to compensate for the fact that red light is absorbed so thoroughly by seawater. 
and I called this camera system the I and the C because I would, was hoping that I could get it developed and leave it on the bottom of the ocean. But I had a terrible time getting funding for it because every funding agency would always ask the same thing. Well, what will you discover with this thing? And I kept saying, but I don't know. That's the point. I think we've been scaring stuff away. Finally, I got an undergraduate college, Harvey Mudd College, to do it as an engineering student project. And they got something that kind of worked on the bench. And then I got the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to pay for putting it all in an underwater housing and a frame. And I got the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, where I was, I still am an adjunct. And uh, they paid for the batteries to run the thing. And then the early tests of the system, where I was trying to figure out how to get just the right illumination so I could see without being seen. And in the early days, when I was using red light and red LEDs, I could still tell that the fish were seeing light. And... I finally got inspiration for how to solve the problem from the stoplight fish. Because when I was studying the stoplight fish, I was measuring the emission spectra from its light organ, and I discovered it had this really, really sharp cutoff filter over its light organ that was shutting out all of the shorter wavelengths, the oranges and the yellows. And I remember when I measured that, I thought, wow, it's giving up a lot of energy to do that. It's got to be really important. So I imitated that for the eye in the sea, and that turned out to be the key to being able to see without being seen. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Like I said earlier, Edith, this came in some, to some degree out of an experience you had that arose from complications during surgery. Tell me how all this began for you when you realised that you might need surgery in the first place. Well, I just went in for my college physical, and the classic question was, do you have any persistent pain? And I was having a pain down my back of my left leg, but I was a water skier in the summer and a snow skier in the winter, and um, I figured, oh, I just pulled something. But the doctor wanted it x-rayed, and uh, I got kind of an alarmed call telling me I needed to go see an orthopedic surgeon immediately, who proceeded to explain that my back was broken, which he illustrated by putting one fist on top of the other and pulling them halfway apart and saying I had a 50% slippage that was cutting off the nerve down my left leg anytime I was sitting. And when I was standing, you know, I had, I'd always had low back pain. I, I couldn't remember a time when I hadn't. Do you have any idea when you broke it? Well... It was probably when I was about eight or nine. I used to spend a lot of my youth climbing into and jumping out of trees, and I remember one instant where the jump didn't go very well, and I think I, that's probably when I broke it. So you'd been living with a broken back since, since your childhood then? Yeah, I was having a pretty good childhood, though. I just 
you know, I thought, I, I called it being tired. I didn't know everybody didn't have low back pain. But by the time I got through my first semester at Tufts University, I realized I really couldn't go on like this because the pain had gotten much, much worse. So um, at the beginning of my second semester, they scheduled a spinal fusion, um, which in those days involved taking bone chips out of my hip and putting them between those two vertebrae. And then I was supposed to be in a full body cast for quite a few months to make it heal. And it didn't go well. The surgery went fine, but it was the recovery room. Um, they said I was flipping around the table like a um, fish out of water. And I had what is known as DIC, um, disseminated intravascular coagulation. And uh, it, all your clotting factors go out into your capillaries. And usually a doctor sees his patient is hemorrhaging because those clotting factors aren't available where they're needed. And so you're hemorrhaging into your surgical site and then they'll treat you with a coagulant. But that's what ends up killing you and leading to organ failure. Um, so my doctor had actually just been to a conference and knew what it was that was happening to me and he treated it with an anticoagulant heparin, but that made the bleeding that much worse. And so I actually bled into my lungs and I bled into my eyes. So when I came to eventually, I, um, uh, I was blind. Edith, how close to death did you get during that period? Well, um, they had to resuscitate me three times, three resuscitations, but only one near-death experience. What do you remember of that? The, it was the, the classic NDE where I was um, above my body looking down, and there was actually another entity there with me, and we were making a decision about what was going on under, beneath us. Were you feeling frantic in that time, in that moment, or serene? No, no, no. Very serene, very calm. And that's that's one of the universals of NDEs is this sense of calm, which I wonder might even be some kind of evolutionary adaptation to keep you from hurting yourself when you're an extreme extremist like that. I, I mean, I don't draw any conclusions from this. I prefer to keep an open mind. Um, but I certainly understand why people that have experienced it feel like it, it felt spiritual. Um, it certainly felt real. Did it feel profound? Oh yeah, it, it felt pretty profound. As I said, I was very calm when I came to, which is in retrospect surprising since I was blind. I had a tube down, I'd been intubated, you know, so I couldn't speak. I had tubes running everywhere. Um, and I remember my parents trying to explain to me what had happened and being, sounding like, oh yeah, okay, that's fine, no problem. What had happened to blind you? What, why were you blind? I had hemorrhaged into both eyes. I'd hemorrhaged into my lungs, because, you know, the loss of the clotting factors on top of having to use heparin just meant um, the blood was leaching out of my, my um, capillaries. Did that bother you when you woke up? No, not at all. I was fine with it. Um, and I was fine for about a week in the ICU and for a few days afterwards when they put me on the ward. But once I was on the ward, I got to have visitors and some friends had brought roses and everybody who walked into my room commented on these beautiful roses. Everybody made a fuss over the roses. And then somebody came in and mentioned the beautiful yellow roses. 
and it was like somebody slapped me awake because I went, what? Yellow? I had been picturing those roses as red, and I, I, it was just like being slapped awake, and I started trying to analyze what I could see, and I realized I couldn't see anything. I didn't know where the door was. I kind of guessed where it was based on sounds. I hadn't been seeing people's faces. I'd kind of been filling them in. I tried to see my own hand, and I couldn't see it. You know, I was profoundly blind. Um, I started to get vision back in one eye over time, but it was very slow. And when I finally got out of the hospital four months later, I could see out of my uh, right eye, but my left eye I remained blind in for almost a year. What about your spine, Edith? What had happened to that after the operation? Well, the doctor told me that the spinal fusion had been ruined because of all my flipping around, all the bone chips had gone flying. Um, but uh, <laughs> I got a lucky break, if you'll excuse the <laughs> expression. Um, I, uh, I actually got a massive infection, which was a huge problem. That was your lucky break? <laughs> that was my lucky break that, because it led to increased calcification. So I'd ended up, I ended up with a strong fusion, which was very unexpected. Do you remember your sight returning to you and how it felt? Did it feel like a gift to get it back again? Well, it's it. I think it's been a felt like a gift ever since. Um, there was no one moment when I knew I was going to get my vision back. In fact, the doctors were extremely unhelpful in that regard because they couldn't see my retinas, so they didn't know if they detached. So when I asked if I was going to be able to see again, they didn't know. But little by little, I started to see flashes of light through swirling darkness, which I think probably helped me think a little bit more about what it was like for these animals in the deep sea and later, because they, it's flashes of light in swirling darkness. <laughs> and, you know, you have to try to make sense of it somehow. How long did it take before you could get out of hospital and, and start to see the world again? Well, it was four months before they, they let me out. <laughs> but then, you know, once I got home, I started healing pretty fast um, I could walk. I had to wear a back brace for more than a year. But I, within a year, I was, I was scuba diving again. How lovely was it to be weightless in the water again, suspended like that? Oh, I, yeah, scuba diving was just wonderful because it is, it is just being suspended, weightless. I remember one dive um, in the Bahamas where I just suddenly had this sense of total glee and freedom and I just started laughing so hard I filled my mask several times with water I had to keep clearing it because I got the giggles so bad <laughs> but it was it was just this amazing sense of freedom does that sense of wonder and gratitude go away after a while or does it stay with you well it's definitely stayed with me I, I felt very blessed um, and fortunate and you know, every time I get to go down in a submersible and have the opportunity to see something that possibly nobody's ever seen before, I just can't believe my good fortune. You mentioned the, the camera system, I and the C, that you developed or helped develop or initiated in order to have a sort of an unobtrusive camera system that could sit right down the bottom of the ocean depths to observe animals going about their business without feeling that there was some great big bit of technology or human trudging around the place near them. 
How well did it work once you actually got it down there? When did you start to actually see things you hadn't seen before with that device? So the very first expedition I took it on was to the Gulf of Mexico, to this absolutely amazing place called the Brine Pool, which is an underwater lake. It is literally a lake on the bottom of the ocean. What do you mean? How does that work? How can you have a lake at the bottom of the ocean? Yeah, you have to keep asking yourself as you're looking at it, how, how the heck is this happening? Yeah. But the brine is, you know, just super salty water that settles in these pools. And it actually has a shoreline. And a lot of these brine pools have methane that bubble up through them. And there's bacteria that support an ecosystem around them so that you you have a shoreline that's got all of these huge mussels and clams and crustaceans roaming around it. And you come up on it with the submersible. And if you try to go through that water, that brine, it's too dense for the submersible to go through it, but you'll create waves, slow motion waves that actually lap against the shore and it's so otherworldly. You are blowing my mind right now, Edith. Uh, this is really blowing my mind. <laughs> well, you should Google b- brine pool because you've you got to see some of the video of it because it, it's just astonishing. It's absolutely astonishing. And it is kind of an oasis on the bottom of the ocean where a lot of, I've assumed a lot of predators might patrol. So that was the first place I put the eye in the sea. And I left it down overnight. And I had programmed it so that for the first four hours, it was just the red lights on. And I was ecstatic when we got it back and I was reviewing the video because I could tell the fish weren't seeing the lights. The lights came on and they didn't respond in any way. They just kept swimming around. And I I had my window into the deep sea and just thought I couldn't possibly be happier and then four hours into the deployment, I had programmed the electronic jellyfish that imitated the display of that Atola jellyfish that I told you about, the pinwheel of light that I always wanted to know how animals responded to it. And so I had programmed that to come on four hours into the deployment. 86 seconds after it came on for the first time, we recorded a squid over six feet long that was completely new to science. It could not even be placed in any known scientific family. I could not have asked for a better proof of concept. And I went back to the funding agencies and said, this is what we will discover. And they gave me a half a million dollars to do it right. <laughs> that, that squid was worth half a million dollars to you, wasn't it? Yes, it what was. What was it doing? Was it capering around? Or what was it doing as it came up to you, Cameron? No, it was attacking the electronic jellyfish, trying to find the thing next to it that was causing it to light up. Did you feel guilty about that? I mean, you got half a million dollars, but the squid didn't even get a meal out of it? I don't feel guilty at all. <laughs> <laughs> so that's wonderful. So this this device caught the attention of other people who have been looking for the legendary giant squid, the Kraken of the Oceans that was rumoured to exist. It's part of old sailors' tales. Tell me how you were brought into that, the hunt for the giant squid with this wonderful technology. Edith. So I had given a TED Talk, a gathering of people to share ideas, and I talked about bioluminescence mostly, but I showed some of the video that I'd recorded of squid attacking the electronic jellyfish. And one of the other speakers at that particular event was uh, a giant squid hunter named Mike Degree. And he just got super excited when he saw my video. And he said, do you think that might work to attract a giant squid? And I hadn't actually thought about it 
but I said, yeah, I think it actually should work because, you know, I think they've got to be visual predators. They've got the largest eyes of any animal that we know of. And so Mike got me invited to speak before a bunch of television people at the Discovery Channel and the Japan Broadcasting Corporation, NHK, that were thinking of funding this giant squid expedition off Japan. So I, you know, I put forth my idea of using red light, being unobtrusive, and using an optical lure. And I think it was Mike's energy more than anything that got me invited on an expedition there. Originally, the expedition was supposed to occur in 2011, but that was when the tsunami hit in Japan and Fukushima had three meltdowns, nuclear meltdowns. So everything was put on hold until 2012. And sadly, Mike was killed in a helicopter accident just before the expedition was supposed to happen. So I ended up going on this expedition that he got me invited on without him, which was very painful. But it turned out to be a huge success. I had a new version of the Eye in the Sea called the Medusa that I had kind of designed in collaboration with uh, Justin Marshall, who's um, an expat Brit living in Australia, and Sanka Johnson. We tried to figure out a way to condense the eye in the sea into something that didn't need to be deployed with a submersible or a remote-operated vehicle. We could just throw it off a ship. And so that's what I was testing off Japan. The first time we deployed it was without the electronic jellyfish, and we saw almost nothing on the video when we got it back. And the second time we deployed it was with the electronic jellyfish, and we got the first video ever recorded of a giant squid. How did it come into view? The first time it it just waved its enormous arms in front of the camera lens, and we didn't get to see the whole body. It was just like it was teasing us. But after we saw how huge it was, we extended the bar with the electronic jellyfish out in front of it further so that we have a better chance of seeing the whole thing when it came into view. And we did eventually get the whole thing coming in for an attack. So we we, we filmed it four times with the, the camera system, the Medusa. It, it was just so thrilling to be able to capture that creature of legend for the first time. The Kraken is real. The Kraken is real. Had it had its tentacles fully extended, it would have been as tall as a two-story building. Wow. I don't know why it pleases me so much to know that such things are real, Edith. I don't know why, but it really does. It really does please me to know that the giant squid, (laughs) it's as big as a two-story house, is real. And there must be more than a few of them down there. Oh, yeah. And actually, they can get as big as a four-story house. Oh, my God. And based on the number of giant squid beaks found in sperm whale stomachs, there's probably millions of them down there. But what about the stuff we don't know about because we've been scaring it away? The reason we know that, that the Kraken exists is because it happens to float when it dies because it's got ammonia in its tissue. That's actually pretty unusual. What about the stuff that doesn't float? How much is there down there that we don't know about just because our typical means of exploration, either dragging nets behind ships or going down with submersibles or remote-operated vehicles with loud thrusters and blare, you know, just brilliant, brilliant lights are scaring animals away. For the last, I don't know, 50 years or so, space exploration seems to have been getting 
I don't know, for me, increasingly disappointing. I mean, I now realise how big the space is between stars and planets. The planets we've been able to send probes to so far have shown no signs of life whatsoever. They seem to be completely barren of life. And here's you and other scientists getting into a submersible, going into another frontier and finding it's full of life. What do you think about all that, Edith? Yeah, I I think that the space race in the 60s caused NASA to be written a blank check. And they did some great things with that money, including develop an enormous public relations machine that made people fall in love with space exploration and space cowboys. But it's not really logical when you realize how little of our own planet we've actually explored. Sometimes the excuse for space exploration is we've explored our whole planet. We haven't even come close. The number you hear most often is that we've explored only 5% of our ocean. It's actually way less than that. That number was originally just from um, remote mapping of the bottom of the ocean, not actually visiting it. If you're talking about actually visiting it, we've only visited about 0.05% of the bottom of the ocean. So the weird thing is that historically our pattern has been to explore and then exploit. But with the ocean, we've done it in reverse. We're actually exploiting the ocean before we have figured out what's in it by dragging just enormous nets behind ships to pull up every last fish, dragging them across the bottoms of the ocean to just completely destroy undersea gardens for one haul of shrimp or bottom-dwelling fish. Now we're about to go into a a deep-sea mining mode that's going to destroy more bottom habitat. We're doing deep-sea drilling, and at the same time that we're pulling out every last shrimp and fish, we're filling the ocean with our plastics and our pollutants. Do you think if we knew more about what was in the deep ocean, we'd care about it more? I think we have to know more about the ocean um, because it's part of the life support machinery of the planet. And it's astonishing that we are messing with that machinery without really understanding it. We don't even have a user's manual for our planet, let alone a repair manual. And exploration is the first step to doing that. We have to explore and better understand how life works on this planet if we're going to sustain life. How much pleasure have you been able to take out of life by keeping that childlike sense of curiosity and wonder about the world? I think exploration is key to so much happiness. We know it as children. We're, we're just all born explorers. But unfortunately, I think it gets kind of beaten out of you over time. But some of your greatest joys are exploration. You know, our, our favorite stories are of discovering an ancient tomb or a secret garden. These are all, you know, the things that intrigue us. And I can't imagine a more joyous experience than discovering something about our planet that nobody ever knew before. I mean, it is just such an astonishing thrill. And it's there for so many to enjoy, and they don't even know it. Edith, it's been a joy to speak with you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. Edith Witter's book is called Below the Edge of Darkness. Somewhere. 
Listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.